there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Welcome to another Ravel Rant. We have a few items that we need to talk about today. Of course, our minds are still with Palestine, and there is a lot of updates to unpack there. We're also going to talk about the privatization of healthcare, mostly in Ontario, but trending right across Canada. And then we're going to talk about the vulnerability of students, the cost of living that affects them, the high tuition rates, unpaid internships. There's a lot there that really lends to the rates of poverty that students experience. And, and Santiago has a few stories to share with, to share with us there. Before we get into some important updates in terms of the siege on Gaza, we were trying to decide what we were going to talk about, and it's hard. It's hard to, for me to keep pace with all of that's happening, all of the updates coming in from Gaza and surrounding that issue, and then to try to keep on top of the other politics in our life and our lives. And I think like I've seen a lot of posts recently that let me know that I'm not the only one feeling exhausted. Right. And that's not to center myself because I can only imagine what it's like to also be Palestinian in these times and consistently waiting for updates from back home and seeing the erasure of your people. And organizing through that and continuing to resist through that is taking a toll I don't think many of us have experienced before. You texted me last night something along the lines of like, I don't know how we're staying sane. And and my response was, I'm not. Yeah. When I said that, I was more maybe trying to convince myself that I was still holding on to my sanity. But it's been difficult. You know, uh, these things come in waves and I think like reach definitely a point of just like sheer exhaustion from the toll of of everything that's happening. Um, not just I mean, everything that's happening in Palestine, everything that's happening in Canada too, the uh, global issues in general, I, I made the mistake of... Um, well, not a mistake because it's it's helpful, but I started like reading about about genocide and I started reading about genocides around the world in the throughout the course of history. I was shocked at the sheer number of genocides that occurred in the twentieth century, even the twenty first century that we know nothing about. You know, it's and it's it was difficult to read about that and but at the same time i think that so i mean yeah 
not holding on to sanity in a way I think is also the the sane thing to do because <laughs> I think the state of things are such as at such a level where if you're not feeling that I would almost, like I would almost be concerned if I was doing perfectly fine right now with how things are. I think like the people that are doing fine have in a way switched off their humanity to a degree. I think we started to see it with the pandemic and people's just detachment from community responsibility of keeping each other safe and only worrying about yourself. And it became like a triage where that's all you could do, right? You're in the state of survival, trauma, and you kind of carp compartmentalize that and shut everything else out that you feel like you can't control. And it's so hard, like I feel it, but when I hear you say like, I'm so exhausted, that makes me so frustrated too, because it's like the time right now that people need to be as fierce and resistant as possible. And I, I really, really worry about the organizers, you know, within the Palestinian youth movement, especially, and other folks that we see that are doing consistent actions daily. Like, that's a lot. This, this has been a lot. And then you pair that with the sheer horror of having to bear witness to what's happening in, in Gaza and balancing that, you know, do I not look because it, you know, you can't unsee those images. They create feelings in you that may or may not be useful, <laughs> but then do you look away? Do you look away and not bear witness? And then this genocide ends up like the other ones that you're talking about where we don't know anything because I feel like it's not, it's only because of the sheer tenacity of the Palestinian diaspora that we've been surrounded by that we first knew the predicament Gaza was in when this all started, but that feels such a, an affection for the people of Gaza, right? Somehow we've made that connection there where we haven't made it in other communities. And so even though we might have had tidbits of information that come through that let us know that like genocide is happening, we don't latch onto it and refuse the narrative to be changed in the way that we have pushed back on Palestine. So I'm thankful for that, but it, it does draw into question, you know, how important that pushback is and bearing witness is, even though it's so hard to do. Like, I don't really want to keep up with these updates, but we absolutely need to know what's happening in places like the Al-Shifa Hospital, where UN groups with the World Health Organization finally went to witness what they now call a death zone. And just like the statements from the Red Cross that we've seen, these are typically very uncharacteristic statements by the World Health Organization as to what they witnessed in that hospital in terms of mass graves, shrapnel, signs of bombardment and gunfire. And at this point, we have 300 patients that are absolutely immovable. And this used to be one of the like prestige hospitals in Gaza. It, it had incredible infrastructure 
in terms of healthcare capacity. And it's, it's essentially just an empty building, half destroyed, with 25 staff left in it. So now you're down to one healthcare facility in the south of Gaza, where they've told people to evacuate from there now. So the Hamas headquarters that they were expecting to find at Al-Shifa Hospital. Did you see the photos, Santiago? What, what, what photos? Well, I, you know, I think the caption was countless arms and you could quite count them. There was about 14 uh, automatic weapons, the clips that go with them. My terminology for weaponry is awful. OK, so there's not even as many clips as there are weapons. So... There was also WD-40 laid out on the table. Like, they tried as hard as possible to make this look like some sort of control center. And one thing that I don't get... So now, apparently, that headquarters didn't materialize. And so now they say it's actually underneath another hospital. I can't even... It's it's like The Onion writes this stuff. So it's at under a hospital in the south of Gaza now. But But they're trying to tell us after 75 fucking years of occupation... The resources that their intelligence services have and that the IDF has, they don't know exactly, like exactly where Hamas is within Palestine. I find this very hard to believe considering what the capacity and the aid that they get from the U.S. Special Forces is, not to mention their own Special Forces. So, Did you, did you see the BBC's... They they did a they did a segment talking about about um, this exact uh, th- exactly this right and essentially they were saying you know like that that you know the BBC sent in their own teams um, and they were starting to like they were essentially saying like all of these claims made by Israel are were not able to 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 verify like they were starting to have some pushback from the BBC about the validity of the the claims being made and you know you mentioned you know israeli intelligence i mean do people have any idea what the mossad is you know like they we're talking about what is considered to be one of the most sophisticated intelligence agencies in the world that they sell their their technology to other parts of the world they collaborate with other world intelligence agencies like supposedly they're the best of the best, right? And you're telling me that the that they they don't know, they're getting this wrong. I mean, what happened to that video they released of all the tunnels and everything? Like, are people under the impression that if that wasn't it, like if that was there, it would be everywhere. We would be seeing it everywhere. It would be plastered all over social media. No doubt that Hamas has tunnels and that Palestinian resistance movements utilize tunnels. They have an, a finite amount of space in Gaza, and it's the most densely populated area around. So they're going to use any means necessary to create more space. And we know even the Israeli army helped build underground uh, capacity underneath that hospital. So, of course, they know that there's something there. If... If Israel is flattening neighborhoods, the most logical thing would be to go underground. You know, it's not exactly 
That's a great point. They fucking demonize these tunnels that they talk about, but yet every Israeli household has to have a bomb shelter. Now, do you think all of a sudden Gazans are going to be able to afford bomb shelters or do they just don't fucking deserve them? No, right? And so it's like tunnels, real nefarious kind of undertones, yet a safe room in every Israeli house is perfectly normal. It's it's the deep. There's some imagery here, you know, like there's there's some symbolism to the way that this portray, you know, like there's so many it it, it it comes back to dehumanization right like this yeah. this caricature of like you know the rat or the the mole or like underground creatures you know like you you, I, you feel that in how they're depicting this you know like they're like like those who seek shelter underground are not human i that's it that's kind of in the subtext of this I think like some people wonder why though, like why then bomb hospitals, right? Why would a state do that? Like it's such an evil thing to do. And I think another scene that we witnessed this week helps tell that story, even though we've already talked about how this is essentially just a land grab. It's an annexation. We've seen them raise flags over top of these destroyed hospitals. They've been using bulldozers to carve the Star of David in in a park that used to be for children. This is colonialism happening in front of our eyes. But when you see them capture a government building uh, and then days later demolish it, it becomes clear that they are trying to make Gaza unlivable. So even if they were forced to allow people to return, which we know they won't, they've never gone back to the borders after the wars. It's always been land grabs but even if they did there would be no ability to live there the health infrastructure has been destroyed the water infrastructure has been destroyed the government infrastructure has been destroyed and they've delegitimized in the eyes of the world hamas who although the election has not been for a very long time were the only political representation in town and so by destroying all of this they are essentially that is what makes it genocide because people will not be able to go back and live here. They will be dispersed throughout other Arab communities or taken within the refugee programs of European cities and and made to live in poverty there. Let's talk about that word for a second, right? Genocide. Because, you know, people don't know what that is. And I found it interesting because I saw... There was a debate. I've been watching entirely too much Pierce Morgan. It's kind of almost like an anthropological experiment at this point. But it, the stuff you see on the... <laughs> too much. I've been watching too much of it. Um, just to kind of get a feel for, like, the narratives, right? And I saw there's this one American rabbi who kind of, like, was asking this um, guy. He was debating. I, I forget if he was Palestinian. I know he was Muslim, but... Um, like, oh, like, you use the word genocide, do you even know what that means, right? Like, do you know what the term is? And he didn't go on, he did not go on to explain it. But I was curious, because, like, I, I mean, I, I know what genocide is, but I wanted to see, like, you know, like, the actual definition of genocide, remind myself what it is, right? And, you know, the United Nations Geneva Convention defines genocide very clearly as any of five acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethical racial or religious group these five acts were killing the members of the group causing them serious bodily or mental harm imposing living conditions intended to destroy the group preventing birth 
and forcibly transferring children out of the group. Yeah, all five of those are happening to different extents. All five of those. And, 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 and you can, like, these are documented things, you know? There are, how many children are detained without charge in the West Bank? We know that that's happening. Not to mention seven, up to 70% of the victims of Israel, sorry, up to 70% of Palestinians killed since October 7th have been women and children. Mm-hmm. So if you remove the fact that you have exiled people from where they live, that is a criteria. But you are wiping out their women and children and the means for them to have children safely. 50,000 women at the beginning of this in, in Gaza were pregnant. So that's there's been it's about 180 to 100 women a day having to give birth in these conditions and they are not surviving. The maternal health rate there was already abominable and it's worse. It's, you can only imagine what it is now. There's a really, one thing people are not talking about enough is there's a really gross culture that's a part of, you know, Zionism uh, that around, you know, I don't even know how to describe this at this point, but it's it's around demographic makeup and births and children that is really fucking icky. Like not like they're really obsessed <laughs> with this. And I'm sitting here like, going, "Are you going to talk about?" Yes, yes, I am going to talk about how you know birthright. <laughs> And people need to look this up because there is a lot around this. It's kind of a sex cult. And a lot of people don't know that. But a lot of birthright is designed to create Jewish babies is essentially what it is. Um, and that's not that's not um, hearsay. This is this is documented. That's not even what I thought you were going to talk about. Oh, what did you think I was going to talk about? Is it the the uh, sterilization of non-white Jews? No, this just keeps getting worse. It's about the fact that Israel actually tweeted out a story. Oh yeah! <laughs> oh yeah! yeah about yeah, 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 yeah. an Israeli woman who the needed to retrieve harvesting. the sperm of her husband who had been killed in the line of apartheid duty. And that this was not just a one-off occurrence, that there are reports, there is a unit within the Israeli army that does try to do this. And so I know I I kind of interrupted (laughs) your talk, but I feel like it fits along the same thing. Like the most important thing is, is populating that area with Jewish folks and we've seen people that hadn't fully converted not being buried in the same cemeteries and stuff and so it's like people need to understand how ethnically based this state of government is I don't think that's anything that we're used to that that is so explicit you know like the Canadian government does this but not just so explicitly no there's levels here happening there there are layers at work here like there are several like like the sterilization and none of this of, was even in the notes <laughs> no 
like, like it's not just Jewish babies. They want white Jewish babies, right? Like we we've heard about how um, I, for, I forget the different terms for different Jewish people. Uh, I, I I know Ashkenazi, but I, I forget the other ones. But um, there was the Ethiopian Jews who were being sterilized upon immigrating to Israel because they didn't want them reproducing. Um, that That's one thing, you know. Yeah, the birthright thing is really fucking unhinged. Um, and, like, I don't want to also get into that, like, moral equivalency test where it's like, look how they live, it's immoral or anything like that because that's... No- it, it, it's more of a philosophical thing here. Like I'm, like I'm, I'm all, I'm all for a good time. But what we're talking about here is, is, is racial supremacy. You know, like we're talking about, like, really, I, I, I'm, a, I'm almost at a loss of words for how to describe this because I'm not used to having to talk about this. But th- this is racism. Is like, it, it, and it's a certain type of racism that's like, wow, you're really going for it. You know, like. This is and and this is part of like when we talk about genocide. This has this, this goes us. This is a part of it because they're trying to make it so that this land is a particular ethnicity. And I think what's most ironic is the fact that Netanyahu has been reported to be essentially an atheist, and like many other struggles in history, where they're framed in religious ways. That Zionism has just been co-opted, like it, it's an ideology that has been utilized by imperialists to a certain end. And though like there are populations within that are inherently racist and talk about racial superiority, that Netanyahu likely doesn't even give a shit that it's all about imperialist gains, right? It's about taking land, having power being a so-called war hero and that the malicious ends that he has in the end have nothing to do with all of that, right? They That's how they've created that workforce around them, right? And help prop up and legitimize the type of government that they have because the Zionist ideology is permeated through that. And that's the only way that you could even convince people, you know, Hunger Games style, the people in the capital surely know how the other, uh, what do you call them, districts live. They just don't see them as, as human. They're less than. And this is important to maintain that or else surely they would not allow for in the same way. Hopefully we would not allow something like Gaza to exist, even though we have First Nations reserves. But at some point you have to maintain that facade. Right. So your populace doesn't fight back or demand an end to that. And so he uses that ideology to his gain and and the powerful use that to their gain, which is in in the end, U.S.-based interests, right? Oil, gas, and proximity to other nation states that they need to have military bases there. But I think, you know, a couple of the other things that we heard this week tell us that the tide is turning a little bit. You talked about the BBC actually fact-checking, which is, that is new in terms of 
the October 7th length of time. I think we're at day 44. And at the beginning, they were just reiterating everything is Israel set without check, without even critique. That's changing. Also, the U.S. is starting to shift their position a little bit. Now, we still don't have Biden saying ceasefire. In fact, there's footage of him saying there's there's no way that's going to happen. However, his focus is on what's happening on the West Bank, in the West Bank, in terms of settlers. And he's gone as far as to call them extremists, which I would not argue with that label. But it makes it really hard for them to maintain this war on terror, war on Hamas facade if they're going to continue to harass people in the West Bank and steal that land, as well as Israel destroyed a Fatah uh, administrative building inside a refugee camp in the West Bank. And so I think it's becoming more clear and harder politically for U.S. and Canada to maintain these positions. Surely Trudeau is feeling the heat. We've seen him harassed at dinner fundraisers canceled. There's comrades out across our country here that have done a phenomenal job of uh, interrupting business as usual. Uh, I feel like I can't keep up with the boosts in terms of people sending me their actions in different cities and finding these politicians everywhere they go. And so I think that public pressure teamed with the absolute abhorrent way the Israeli army has tried to manage their propaganda. It's just been done so badly that nobody can defend them anymore. And I'm really feeling for the folks who a week ago simply reiterated what they were reading on um, electric in- Infantada, where, or electric intifada, where they reported that the Israeli Apache helicopters that responded to the music festival likely fired on Israeli citizens, causing a lot of death and destruction. If you look at a lot of the kibbutzes that have been attacked by Hamas, they too have blown out walls and appear to be damaged by a lot more than simply just fire and small arms. So it's becoming more clear to the world that we're not getting the full story out of Israel, which is typical of any army at war. But there were a lot of people removed from their positions and really demonized in the media for saying this a week ago, simply because an Arab outlet reported it. The Israeli media sources are now repeating these claims and verifying them. And so it just goes to show that this bias that exists in everything that we've talked about exists in who we listen to here in Canada, even, right? So hopefully those people are feeling a little bit more vindicated, as well as other people are starting to open their eyes that it's quite astonishing that after 44 days, we don't know exactly what happened on October 7th. And I feel like that would help in most situations in in terror attacks across the world. We are given the most, you've seen it, right? You've seen the diagrams. They'll show the diagrams of where people entered and the horrible details that we're provided with. But this is like this fog of war. And it just, you know, it's starting to become a little too thick and folks are starting to notice. So side note, uh, we interrupt. 
uh, the broadcast to announce that I, I might have COVID. I'm starting to feel a tickle in the back of my throat as I'm recording this. So so, so as we're doing this, I'm going to do a, a COVID test because I have them in front of me and I, I kind of want to know. But, um, uh, yeah, no, um, I'm not sure when we'll have a full picture of what happened on October the 7th. For me, my thing is, when I look at this, and it's very similar to, you know, when we have conversations about 9-11 and uh, other similarly um, polarizing events where it's like, you know, to a certain extent, that's not what's important, is what happened. And I say that like, you know, either way, whether or not it was... You know, Hamas carried all of them, and they and 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 they committed multiple war crimes, and you know, all of that. Or Israel killed half the people with Apache helicopters. For me, what's important is what happens after, right? Because and because before, you, yeah. But but when I when I say after, it's it's to say that you you can't bring them back. You know, you can't. And how we choose to respond speaks to our humanity, right? And so, same same thing with nine eleven. You know, people wanted wanted revenge, and then Afghanistan was invaded for for twenty years for nothing. There, there was nothing, barely anything came out of that, right? There was the the war in Iraq, which had nothing to do with it. But the sentiments around 9-11 were used to justify the war in Iraq. And the region has not recovered. Was that, like, does horrible, like, uh, do we live in an eye-for-an-eye society? Or, or do we try and rise above and, and try and say something horrible happened here? How do we stop this from happening again? And I think the most foolish thing is that there, there, there's so many people out there who believe that that something like Hamas, oh, we have to get rid of Hamas. Oh, we have to do it with weapons. That's not how that works, idiot. You don't... Hamas is not... Like, Hamas... Yeah, there's, there's, there's people in Hamas, yes. And you can go and kill all of them. But really what it is is an idea, right? And... You can get rid of Hamas and another organization will take its place because along the way, how many orphans are you creating? How many people are you radicalizing with the violence who are then going to to, to grow up and take arms, right? Uh, because I, I got to be honest, if looking around at my life, if, if all of my, if my family was killed, if all of my friends were killed and I was still alive, can I say that? For certain that I'm not gonna rise up in arms. No, I I can't say that, and I don't think anybody can say that, right? Um, cycles of violence, we've seen it everywhere in different examples, in different forms. But cycles of violence is what happens when you meet violence with more violence. The idea that Hamas is something that can be defeated with violence is foolish. Just like you know, oh, we got to defeat Al Qaeda with violence. Well. And then they created ISIS, and then you like 
fetuses and and I mean, has has anything changed? No. And I think like I agree with you 100 percent on how we react is important and the context in which everything happened is important. But also uncovering exactly what happened on October 7th does have value to me for a few reasons. One, part part of what Hamas did and why they did it, if we're following the patterns of other resistance movements, was to expose Israel for what it is. And that may sound so heinous because in the end it's acknowledging that they knew what the repercussions would be. But also it's important to show that illegitimate state for its callousness to civilian life. I think the world needs to see this. And that's part of the work of the resistance is to show the world what Israel is really about, what they have been doing for the last 75 years, so that it will stop. So it's not so much about lessening the crimes you could possibly charge Hamas operatives, leaders with, but to demonstrate just how this state responds and their callousness even towards their own civilians is demonstrated by like the fact that they don't care that they might be bombing hostages as they do that, but also how they responded on October 7th. That indeed it was always about just instigating this, which feels like a final siege of Gaza. Um, before we go on to our other topics, though, I want to go back to the point of retaining one's humanity. And I read a piece this week, and I've lost track of where it is, but it was talking about a protester for the Vietnam War who held a nightly candlelight vigil outside the White House for an extended period of time, mostly by themselves. And when interviewed and asked about the effectiveness of a one-person protest, one candle in the night. Their response wasn't that, yes, I think, you know, people will see me and be inspired and do the same, and or a politician will feel so bad that they will change their mind. They were doing it to retain their own humanity. They were doing it so that the times around them wouldn't change them that they would not become complacent in the violence that they were seeing, that they would resist in whatever form or capacity that they had in that moment. And that would, that was all that they could do to just keep their humanity. You know, I imagine they use that time to feel and reflect and not just shut it away and forget about it because it hurts too much, right? So that drew inspiration, like even for small acts of resistance, how sometimes it might just be to preserve your own sanity, your own sense of fight and responsibility. And sometimes if that's all you can do, that's what you got to do. Um, 
I remember I, I heard about the same thing, and it it definitely it, it spoke to me. And you know that feeling of standing alone. I can I can I can I can relate to that at times because I can feel like that sometimes. Even when we're not alone, it it, it can it can feel like that in in our day to day as we when we're not you know protesting when we're not online but you know just like existing school work whatever it is and and I'm and I'm thinking about these things and it feels like how how are we expected to just act like everything's normal when it's it's not and trying to remember you know our humanity through it all I've been thinking about that a lot and I we're design we're in a world that's designed to make us forget yeah. that, you know? It becomes very difficult though too, right? It it becomes a lot of burdens to carry at once and there is a huge emotional, even physical toll on on bearing witness and carrying other people's stories and, and fighting back constantly. So to anyone out there that's just feeling extra irritable, super sad, unable to sleep very well. I'm sorry, you know, but that is a sign that you are still, you're still human and you're definitely not alone feeling that way. You know what I, I envy sometimes? I, I look at my cat and I just think he doesn't have any concept of geopolitical conflict or nation states or capitalism or it's just lounging chilling and i envy it sometimes but then it's like but at the same time like at the same time there's a fight to be had and i i'd rather be here fighting it than not um it seems hard to do but we're gonna refocus back to Ontario politics, Canadian politics here, there are still things that are happening that will also make a huge impact on us. And and surely there are things that politicians are doing right now that we can't let them get away with. So we're going to touch base on a couple of things this week. First off, I'm hoping a lot of you have heard the CBC breaking and other folks have been talking about a certain clinic, Don Mills Surgical Unit here in Ontario, where they are being, they provide surgery. It's a privately run clinic, for-profit clinic that provides OHIP users with surgeries. So this is not somewhere where you're expected to pull out your debit card so Doug Ford can still get away with saying you're not paying with your credit card. However, the Ontario government is paying them over twice the rates that they're paying hospitals to do the exact same service. Now, they're not hiding this. When you ask them about it, they acknowledge it. They'll even tell you they're doing everything they can to address waitlist times. They call them premiums. They're paying these folks premiums to incentivize the clinics to perform surgeries like 
cataract surgeries, hip and knee replacements, things that have a long wait list here in Ontario because of underfunding. Now, just so folks know, our hospitals don't lack the infrastructure or room to perform these surgeries. They simply don't have the staff. We know about the nursing shortage and the doctor shortage, and we know that that is directly tied to private clinics popping up as well, is the fact that we don't treat our nurses well, we don't pay them enough money, and we make their jobs as hard as possible because of underfunding in the system. And so they're walking away from the job at record rates or going to more private enterprises like staffing agencies where they'll get paid even more to do the same job as a visiting nurse, as a traveling nurse. These incentives, though, what they're doing is by paying for twice the rate for these surgeries is they're paying for these clinics to, one, make make a enviable profit so that they can even want to be in this kind of business, right? Because private companies want to make as much money as possible. If it's not profitable, they won't do it. There's no doubting that. But again, that's why we have our healthcare under the private structure. They're also paying for these folks to actually... They're upstart costs. So if you didn't perform cataract surgeries before, there's room, there's equipment. So they gave them a quarter of a million dollars just to this clinic alone for that kind of stuff that a hospital already has, that we've already paid for out of public funds. And this this fee that we're talking about doesn't even include what the surgeon actually gets paid because that surgeon gets to bill OHIP as well at the same rate. But the clinic that they're working for is making twice the money. We have to remember our hospitals are already run by private companies. So when we've created now a more profitable model, we are going to start to see a real shift. Not that we haven't seen that shift before, but it is going to be more pronounced now with the emergence of more and more private clinics in Ontario. This is something Doug Ford promised to do back in January, where he had this three-step plan on how to basically open up, he says it's to reduce wait times again, but it's essentially to just make it more profitable and easier for these clinics to show up. I wish folks looked at healthcare providers, private healthcare providers in the same way they looked at developers because then they'd really see the almost criminal ugh, the almost criminal element, the real corrupt element in all of this because I don't know if anyone remembers a certain MPP Christine Elliott, Newmarket Aurora, she's just south of me so we've we've tussled. <laughs> I served her with a petition or two, but I digress, she was the Minister of Health for quite some time. The worst times, you know, before most recent times. It just keeps getting worse. But Christine Elliott has just recently registered to lobby the Ford government on behalf of the parent company of this Don Mills surgical unit. So, like, this isn't their only surgical unit. This is one of the biggest the biggest companies in terms of private clinics in Canada. And now, yes, the former health minister of Ontario is getting paid 
top dollar by them to lobby her old friends in Ford Nation to allow them to open more clinics. And it's fucking working. I know she just registered a week ago, but don't tell me you haven't been talking to them, Christine. Don't even try that. We know that obviously they've been working really hard because that clinic, you know, they had steady payments at $1.32 million uh, for a few years leading up to 2020. And after that, they are now talking like, 5.27 million a year from our provincial government. And so another really maddening thing about this, I don't think our audience needs much help realizing how bad this is. I mean, it's just on face value. It's, It's awful. But down the road, these assholes are going to be able to say that they spend more on healthcare now, right? They're going to be able to say, oh no, last year... We spent $40 billion. Now we spent $60 billion. And the reality is all of that extra money didn't give you one extra service. It just gave extra profit to private clinics and set the pattern to normalize the absolute destruction of the public health care system. And so he's done similar things like this in the past, past with education funding, you know, where they wrapped up like child services with education in the budget. So they were able to say that they spent more on education, but it was just a fudging of numbers. This is even worse. This isn't even another service that's been brought in under. It's You're actually going to get less service. Because if we look at the patterns that have been set by BC, yes, the BC NDP and Alberta, two provinces that heavily depend on the use of private clinics to deliver public health care, Imaging is one of them. We've talked about that on the show. It actually increases the wait lists because doctors and nurses will continue to move over to these higher paying clinics where they're able to get not just the fee from OHIP, but they'll get a cut of the profits. Ford even says himself, this is just so class act because he has just been warring with the nurses in Ontario since he took office. I imagine, wait. So now he's trying to pretend like this is a good spot for nurses to earn money in their spare time. They can earn a few extra bucks at a private clinic for all that spare time that they have from being a nurse. So, Because they're not overworked enough, right? No, no, apparently not. So obviously time will tell how this will impact Ontario's health care, but... Surely folks can see the writing on the wall. And then you get to Danielle Smith in Alberta and she's she's dismantling. Not that's not hyperbole. That's not just trying to describe what she's doing. This is how she has described what she's doing. She's dismantling what the service provider for public health and they're going to restructure. I can only imagine what that's going to look like. So we'll have to just stay tuned on that. And, sorry, it wouldn't be a story if we weren't able to point out the hypocrisies of capitalism here, because quite often the narrative that's used to bring in public sector to do private work, oh, sorry, the narrative used to bring in private companies to do public services, to provide public services, is that they do it more efficiently, more cost effectively. Now, you surely can't make this argument if you're forced to be, pay them double what you pay the public sector. So that just lays that argument bare that the private sector (laughs) is not what it's cut out to be. No, no, it's not. And 
it, it really exposing again like and i was kind of reminded of this when i was thinking about you know the state of our essential goods and services about how how dominated it is by private industry right now and how completely unfunctional i don't even know i i don't have an adjective for this uh, just what a fucking mess <laughs> all of our essential goods and services are right now and it's like it, you, you know it, it's a few years ago you know people would find ways to still kind of you know uh believe in some sort of canadian dream or something but everyone at this point is feeling it in in in, ev in every single way right students because especially we yeah because we we can't we can't catch a fucking break you know like our healthcare system something that we were so proud of is being eroded in front of our very eyes and their aim is to make it like the u.s where what's the number one cause of bankruptcy you know medical debt right where people, I remember I saw this video the other day where, uh, like, a, a bicyclist, a cyclist it fell off their bicycle in the middle of the road and an ambulance was right there and immediately picked them up and all the comments were like, oh, well, that's one way to go broke. And all the Europeans in the comment were, were so confused. They're like, what are you talking about? Ambulances are free. And it was, you know, like a real cultural They're contrast. not even free in Ontario. You'll be billed for an ambulance ride here in Ontario. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? Is like, so, okay, healthcare, disaster. We, um, our education system falling apart. And I'll get into that. Um, our, we pay the highest prices for internet. We pay the highest prices for telephones. Our public transit systems are a fucking embarrassment. At, like, what, what, what am I missing here? There's so many levels to this. Food. You know, food. <laughs> Jesus. Even water. Uh, My water bill here where I live, the the tax rate for the water rates are going to go up 9% this year for water. There you go. And how many, and like, I mean, we have water in... Southern Ontario. But you know who doesn't have water? A lot of people in Northern Ontario. A lot of people a lot of people across the country, especially a lot of indigenous communities who have been waiting decades to have safe drinking water. Right? So there you go. Our water's a mess. Food, yeah. <laughs> I still remember those episodes we did a few a couple months ago on agriculture and I have not emotionally recovered from those episodes in the slightest because it's like every single thing to do with our the production and consumption of our food is a complete disaster and the new reports coming out about food bank usage are deeply depressing so it's like okay everything is a mess and everyone wants to point fingers oh it's trudeau's fault oh it's ford's fault it's like it's it's this is the system this is all of their fault it's everyone's fault Everyone who had a part in this, and they and they they keep doing this, and and it comes back to you know like just a reminder: supply and demand is the biggest fucking scam in the history of economics because it doesn't fucking apply to essential goods and services. It doesn't. So you want to think the market's gonna fix this? Like if anyone ever tells you, uh, oh, it's just supply and demand, tell it like please expose the fuck out of that argument because it does not work. When someone needs something. 
because if you need it, if it's essential, then whatever's charged, you have to find a way to pay it, right? Yeah, the theory is that if someone prices something too high, the market will not buy it, it will be too expensive, or they won't sell enough of it and force the price down. So Santiago's point is, yeah, we're not going to stop buying water. We can't stop buying food. Housing. Housing. (laughs) All of these, like when we're making the notes for our next topic, talking about how vulnerable students are, especially international students who can't work more than 20 hours, how they are expected to keep up with all of these essential goods rising in costs including, you know, the cell phone bill that they definitely have to have as a student. And then on top of that, having to do unpaid internships. Yeah. So uh, I was reminded, you know, as a student right now about unpaid internships this week when um, a, uh, a friend of mine was, um, they, 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 they got a, a, an unpaid internship, which was then, they were informed by the college that it would not count towards their internship hours for some reason. And I I was reminded like, Oh my goodness, unpaid internships. We just accept that as a part of society, but it is so deeply exploitative and students right now with all of the overwhelming issues facing them, how are they expected to, labor for free get nothing out of it because you're not even going to and a lot of times you don't even get a job out of it at the end of it as a way to graduate which is the thing that we're told that we need to do to survive you know we need to graduate get get a diploma yeah yeah like we need to get that piece of paper oh sorry my 15 minute timer just yelled in my ear let's check if i have covid real quick uh, looking good, looking good. Okay, I, 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 I mean, I don't definitively not have it, but at least it's not positive. So, so that's good. Uh, anyways, <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that piece of paper that we're told we need to survive in society, and it's being increasingly difficult to get it. See, I didn't have and to do an internship for my diploma, but you were giving me quite a few examples, and it's 400 hours. That's 10 weeks of unpaid work. Who has the yeah. time, let alone the financial capacity? And, and that's not to say that all internships are unpaid. You you can get a paid internship, but I'm going to use journalism as a fun little example where students are competing with journalists who have been laid off due to uh you know layoffs just the Um, structural changes right of canadian media yeah so they're competing with 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 people with industry experience for these internships so those paid internships no way they're getting them no one's getting those paid internships those unpaid internships what happens when you only have ten dollars in your bank account you know, and and that, that's not like I I I know so many people who are like, look at my bank account, and it's literally like ten dollars, you know. And I was hearing uh, about students at Humber who were fainting from malnutrition because they can't afford to eat, right? So we have to <laughs> like being a student right now. I can't. I, I have to paint this picture because it's it's so deeply 
depressing to be a student right now. And I, I kind of had a, like a, a reality check on this because I, I, I operate on the assumption that, you know, we're all fucked and that uh, I'm going to have no opportunities and be pretty poor and, uh, you know, made my peace with that to a certain extent. But, you know, uh, for a lot of young people here, you know, they're being told, go, go get your degree, get your piece of paper, you'll get a job out of it and you'll be able to live your life, you know. And what they're facing right now, rent is higher than ever before, right? These food prices are squeezing students. International students who have, li- who have, um, I-, I think it's on pause right now, but who usually have a limitation on the amount of hours that they're allowed to work per week are barely able to, to, to make enough money to, to keep up with these things, right? I mean, for as long, like, it's been decades since, you know, there's been like the, the image of the ramen eating college student, right? Because students have always been broke. Now, uh, ramen packs cost like three, four dollars now. <laughs> you know, can get the five <laughs> pack at Walmart. Yeah, but like, that's that's a that's a major financial decision for me at this point <laughs> in time. Like, it's I, an investment, I, Santiago. I, it's an investment. Yeah. I have to check if I can afford instant ramen nowadays, you know. Um, so it's 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 a situation, and I'm seeing it affect students, especially when they get to their last year, and they're looking around and they're like, "Oh, I'm fucked," because they're not getting those internships they need, and you know, I've been in two, I've been in three programs at college now, and I talk to people in a lot of other programs. How many of them, how many people aren't even there by the time you're in your final year? How many people have dropped out? Because it's it's like 70% in my program, you know? I remember when I was in Humber Music, I was one of eight trumpet players, and when I dropped out, I was the last one left, you know? So, so many people are, are paying these massive prices, dropping out, so a lot of people don't even get the piece of paper. And then those who make it to the finish line have all of this debt and nothing to show for it. Because then they're going into this fucked up world that we're in. We're trying to be entry level right now. Trying to like start your career right now. There is no opportunity for anybody. Even if there is, you know, it's the- like $18 an hour and they want a master's degree. Yeah. And so, and, 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 and that's another scam because I know so many students who like, they go, they're like, oh, no, there's no jobs for me. I got to go continue my education. One more piece of paper will do it. <laughs> one one like, more will do it. Graduate certificates. I mean, that, 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 like those one year programs, those are going up. A lot of people are, you know, and, and, and so it hit me because when, when my friend heard that they denied his internship, he he broke down and just the the despair in his voice really impacted me because it's it's it was true like it's not fair what he's going through what so many people are going through it's not fucking fair and the school doesn't we care were lied to right like our education institutions although they're you know they receive public funds. They are consumer-based models, right? They don't 
they're not education based models in, in that they're not there for your needs and to best prepare you for the world. It's just to make money. It's just to, yeah, students are cash cows, especially these international mm-hmm. students. You and then we don't even have representation, you don't right? Have because union? at Humber, we not really. We have something ignite, which it's it's supposed to be our student union. It's an event planning committee is how I would describe it. And and this is not this is not my words. This is <laughs> have like you seen the every, movie, sorry have you seen the movie Trotsky? No. God damn it! Are you serious? <laughs> Uh, that's okay. my answer to you need to 90% remedy of times that if when someone asks me, have you seen, have you heard? No. I'm serious about this. <laughs> this is mandatory rabble rousers watching. You need to watch it because I will make references to this. But basically, he finds his student union, right? He's He thinks he's the reincarnation of Trotsky himself. So he's he is full blast and he's going into the public school system for the first time. And he finds out they have a student union and he is stoked and he goes and he gets there and they're just smoking cigarettes in a broom closet, planning the school dance. And, you know, I will give it away. He makes it what it needs to be. But either way, he walks into a student union like you just described. Well, and and that's the situation, right? (laughs) And Humber has like all of these international students who are coming here without a voice, you know, in a very vulnerable position, not knowing people, you know? And so uh, uh, this isn't my opinion that Ignite is a fucking event plan. This is like an open secret. Everyone knows this, you know? <laughs> Everyone knows Not all student Ignite unions is... are created equal, but yours sounds particularly bad. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, I know that, like, other schools actually have student unions. Great for them. We don't, you know? Um, so, so there's nowhere to turn to at Humber. There's nowhere to turn to. And... And this story is so common. It's so fucking common. And I, I don't know how we're expected to do it, you know? Like, I... Well, you're not. I've I, I've, con- I've considered, you know, leaving before. I'm almost at the finish line, so at this point it's like, oh, fuck. I'm, okay, I'll, I'll finish it. Whatever. But, like, I I don't know how people are expected to do this. And then, like, the ones who succeed, because there, there'll be, like, a few... You know, it's like they, they, the colleges almost are like, look, look, look at our successful alumni. These are our successful alumni. Anybody can be like our successful alumni. You, too, can be like that. And it's like, OK, <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> you know, uh, a, a recent graduate of the journalism program who I was talking to, he was talking about how, you know, he, he did two internships. Right. To get all the hours that he needed, those 400 hours, he worked his ass off. He built his portfolio. He 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 was doing everything he needed, you know. And he can't find a full-time job. He's got a part-time job at Humber. But, yeah. But he can't. He There's just no full-time jobs. And what what's he saying is like, oh, you know, in comms. They start at salary start at eighty thousand versus thirty five thousand for journalism if you can get the job, right? And can stomach so doing a lot, public, yeah, communication. So, so a lot of people who study journalism are now going and doing comms. And I mean, when we talk about the state of Canadian media, that might be a fucking part of it. You know, all of this work and what what's your salary? Thirty five thousand. I know people 
<laughs> like who have worked like desk jobs where you do almost nothing all day with salaries of upwards of 50000 Journalists are, are nowadays are expected because they, they cut all the jobs. Right? So journalists nowadays are expected. You got to write the stories, but you also got to be able to film. You got to be able to edit. You got to be able you, you got to be able to do TV, radio. You got to be able to lay things out. You got to have be able to like do graphic design. You got to be able to you got to do it all. You got to be able to do it all. And you got to hustle like crazy. And what do you get? $35,000 at the end of it. And people still shit on the trades, which is I like I don't understand whatsoever. It, it's that in ideal world, yes, we can go to university, learn critical thought, gain extra skills because we need them in life. But the reality is we also have to be equipped to survive, which means selling our labor. And the trades are an incredible place to do that because most of them are unionized as well. So it's funny that we gear still gear people towards... You know, I'm one to talk. I have a degree in the liberal arts. I felt like I learned a lot from going to university, but I don't think it does anything for my resume, to be perfectly honest. So I almost wish I had gone into the trades. I still would have been politically minded and could have done that kind of work. But it's people still shit on folks that use their hands to do work or choose not to go to post-secondary school and get into the trades as well. So when we talk about, you know, free education, there's so many more reasons behind that than just simply students not ending up in debt. I don't, the mental load that one has to carry in order to maintain this juggling and then to be treated that way, it, that was probably the worst four years of my life. Even though I did enjoy being in university, it was so stressful. I ended up in the hospital with anxiety and just the high pressure stakes that are also involved with like being the top of your class so that you do get the jobs that are available. And it's absolutely incredible. And under this today's, you know, political climate and cost of living, it's got to be too much for folks. And yeah. Yeah, I, I, I feel that for sure. You know, I have been I've been here for Going on eight years, you know, because I switched programs. Um, and it, it, it's just, I've seen how many people have fallen through the cracks. And it, it, not, not because they didn't know how to work, not because they didn't want it or weren't trying. You know, I've seen so many times where students are raising issues that fall on deaf ears. I made it my mission to advocate for the students so last year, I spent a lot of time bringing up concerns to, uh, you know, our program coordinator that those concerns fell on deaf, deaf ears as well. Nothing changed. And what happened? Those students who were raising those concerns that never got met, they left. And then it, they don't feel the need to change anything because those students are now gone. So the students who this does work for, who are still around because it works for them, oh, they use that. As, as a way to validate the way that they're doing things you know it's it's a really really hard time to be a student and 
you know it's it's i don't know it's just it's tough it's tough and i really feel for all my fellow students out there because it's fucking tough i just want to add a little side note because you said it a few times and i know you don't mean it like you say it but we can't edit it out or else your statements won't make sense but when we say fall on deaf ears mm, i just want to acknowledge the little bit of ableism that exists in a lot of our language because in fact it's not that they don't hear it it's that they don't value the voices in it right so these are things that i'm learning from helpful Mm -hmm. disabled advocates that help me unlearn some of the language that they use but i just thought it could be a learning point for our audience and i i'm not coming down you know you know santiago i'm not coming down on you i I just want to like it makes it worse, right? It's not just they didn't hear. And that's what deaf means, right? Like the inability to just like have sound input. They take that input in and they callously reject it. That's what that term actually means. So I wish we had a better way of saying, you know, they heartlessly ignored it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Anyway. I, I do need a better term for that. There's so many of those, you know, and you, you it's like a, as I'm speaking, there's like a little part in the back of my mind that feels like the little cognitive dissonance of like, oh, you know, like I get like the of like, oh, yeah, no, well, that's uncomfortable. And I said it like twice, too. And it's. it's <laughs> yeah, you'll see I'm like making a face trying to wave you up. But we, I know there's a few, you know, if we say people are blind to something, we actually mean they're ignorant to it, not that they don't actually see it. Right. It, we, it it doesn't imply inability, almost a refusal. And so when when there is someone helping you, it's unreal how ableist our language is and racist. So like there's a lot of terms that we use. We don't understand their root origins and then we learn better. But it, it really is incredible how extensive it is. And then it does reinforce things that we don't think that we're, we're reinforcing, right? But anyway... <laughs> This was quite the eclectic episode in the end for those who stuck through it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, this is like to justify my scattered. I'm really burnt out right now. My brain, I'm operating at like maybe 40 percent of my ability to think with clarity. Also, I had to I'm sorry, to not feel so great. So I did a COVID test halfway through. So, yeah, it's been it's been a fun episode in that sense. Um, and yeah, yeah, oh, everything is deeply depressing right now. <laughs> you can't make that the last thing we have on there. Uh, go just whatever it is, just we'll end it now. But go, you can't make that the last line, <laughs> promise. Oh, okay, what, what, what do I got? What do I got this part than that? Um, nah, I got, I, I, I got, I got nothing. I'm making my own ramen. <laughs> that sounds bougie. <laughs> nah, it, I, I'm making like it cheap uh, on the cheap, but like so I can make like bigger batches of it. Like it's funny, like it does get cheaper, but uh, you can link the recipe in the show notes. <laughs> I'm still uh, waiting for my bolognese, uh, bastard. If people want a. <laughs> A, 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 a cooking talk show where we cook while talking through things hit, hit us up and we can make that happen <laughs> I'm here for that and I'm hungry okay I'm ending it That's all, folks. Just, just to stop this madness that is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption thank you for joining us
Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.